Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. We we have been going over a number. We've gone into the Old Testament quite a bit. We've done quite a bit of the New Testament in the epistles. Uh, we really ought to go into the Gospels. Uh, somebody sent me a video, a short video, uh, from way back east. Uh, at least the guy who sent it was from back east. I'm not sure where the guy who made the video is from, but his name is Jester. His last name is Jester, the guy who made the video. And uh, he's a preterist. Uh, he's saying everything was fulfilled when, uh, you know, back there in the first century around Christ. And he, he bases this basically on one tiny little phrase uh, that is very, actually even sketchily translated. It's a difficult, a little bit difficult to translate. It's in, in Paul where he talks about a short work, that God makes a short work. Uh, you look at that word short in the Greek and it doesn't necessarily mean a short period of time. It can be, you know, a, a simple, a, a concise work. And But from that he says, well, it's all done. And of course, now he has a lot of information that is correct. And I, I guess this is why this fellow who is a minister of a church back there in the east, he's not actually a part of his church uh, network. Uh, I, I don't always know what he does. He's, he sends me questions from time to time, but he's not uh, connected in the tens, hundreds, and thousands like the early church was. He's connected with the people that are around about him. And, of course, Jesus Christ came preaching the kingdom of God was at hand. Uh, this uh, Jester fellow, I, I like to use the word Jester. That it may be his last name, but that's that part of the handle. But he really is kind of a court Jester because... He takes a bit of truth here and a bit of truth here. He twists a few things to fit his narrative. And then he comes up with this uh, preacher's uh, gospel that everything was fulfilled and Christianity ended with the fall of Jerusalem. You know, the temple in Jerusalem, which is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, that was a diaspora that took place with uh, the Jews. Uh, because of the fact that it was the destruction of the Jewish system. He quotes people like Josephus and, and, and piece, bits and pieces from the Bible, and he comes and creates this whole conclusion. Oh, of course, I, I, I looked at it. It's only two, two and a half, two, three minutes long, the, the video. And I looked at it, and I was going to maybe play it and, and make a counter video to it, but then I went to his YouTube and saw he's got all kinds of stuff. And a guy could just spend his time... Uh, you know, like going through all the stuff that he has gotten wrong, or we can focus on saying what is the results of, you know, the last 50, 60 years that I've been working, trying to find out what the truth was. You know, it started way back when I was 13 years old. Well, it started before that, but in earnest, it started in the seminary when I was 13 years old, and they were feeding me the gospel according to that particular religion. I have since looked at lots of other religions, and everybody's got little pieces of the puzzle. And But how do they all fit together? 
uh, I'm not a real good mechanic. I have a, one of my sons who's a lot like me in some ways, but he is a very good mechanic because when he sees a piece of machinery, he sees every little aspect of it and how it fits together. Well, I'm not as good with machinery, but I look at precepts and how they fit together. If this is so, then this has to be so. You know, it's it's right reason that I'm looking at when I'm looking at these things like every man's conscience, uh, as we see in uh, Corinthians, uh, where they they talk about in Second Corinthians four. You know, he talks about us being earthen vessels. But before that, he even talks about, uh, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. Well, the hidden things of dishonesty. What are the hidden things of dishonesty? Or through all deceivableness of unrighteousness, believed a lie. You know, he's telling us something in that epistle. That there is things that are hidden. And uh, it's they're hidden partly because of dishonesty of the individuals hiding them or keeping us from seeing them. They're the blind, leading the blind. And all deceivableness of unrighteousness. Now, it's not just deceivableness, but deceivableness of unrighteousness. And, of course, Christ came preaching that we should seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, of course, God's righteousness is righteousness. All of our righteousness is a bit of trash and not the righteousness of God. And so, what what we're trying to find out is the truth. And uh, the truth would fit right reason. I don't know if I personally can come up with right reason. Because right reason is seemingly something that comes from God. You know, we we have an article on right reason. It's actually, if you go to it, it's also uh, co-relative to the statements, the will of God. Because for for centuries, people who talked about right reason considered the will of God, the mind of God, you know, whatever God is, this unmoved mover, was the only source of right reason. Men struggle to find out what that is. And I can have an opinion about right reason. You can have an opinion about right reason. But they're only opinions. There is a form of religion where you are compelled, usually by the people pressing that form of religion, to believe in their opinion of what right reason is. And the Romans called that superstitio in the Latin, from which we get the word superstition. And there's a reason I'm telling you that, because we're going to go and take a look and set the scene before we start like the Gospel of Matthew. We need to know the time and what was going on, the way people thought at that time, what people thought was right reason, what people thought was the will of God, because John the Baptist and Jesus came preaching that we needed to repent. And repent is changing the way we're thinking. So we need to know the way they were thinking to know what they had to change it to. <laughs> you know, that at least change it from. They were thinking this way, but no, they had to change the way they were thinking to something else. Well, it is my contention that nobody will know what to change your thinking to 
without the revelation of God, which is what they told us in the Old Testament, what they tell us in the New Testament, that God has to write upon your heart and upon your mind. If you are striving to know right reason, if you're striving to know the will of God, not only in a general sense for all mankind, but specifically for you as a husband, as a wife, as a son, as a daughter. What is the will of God for you? Will he show you the way to go for you? I mean, I can talk in general precepts, and of course the Bible talks in general precepts, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what to do today and how to do it. But that comes with revelation. And revelation comes to us by way of the Holy Spirit. In the terms that we read out of the Bible, we would use the phrase in the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit guiding us. We know that people in the Old Testament were guided at times. Moses was clearly guided. I mean, he he spoke to somebody at the burning bush or at the uh, pillar of fire. He spoke to somebody in the pillar of fire. And and he heard their conversation back to him. When he was in Egypt, he went and consulted with God. How did he do that? Well, somehow or other, he had the, a way of actually communing with God. And, of course, he was trying to lead people to a place where each of us could be a peculiar, part of a peculiar people that would commune with God. And he set out certain parameters. Once we understand what he was actually setting out, and if you if you haven't gone through our study on Exodus, I recommend it, because we go through a great deal of what Moses was actually doing to set up the culture of Israel so and the government of Israel, which is a part of that culture. And how society was going to interact within society and with other societies. And he was setting this up in order to change the way that people think. To bring them to repentance. That was the goal and intent of Moses. And Moses and Jesus in the New Testament are seen at least one time together. And seemingly in agreement. So was Christ doing the same thing? Was the kingdom of God a system of self-government based on the funding by charity alone, not forced offerings, not tribute, but voluntary offerings? It wasn't built out of stone temples. It was built out of living stones. Well, of course, if you go through our study of Exodus, you will begin to see, and, and we have lots of, and our study on altars of clay and stone, which start way back with Genesis and uh, Abraham. He's building these altars, and our imagination takes these words and builds altars of stone upon which men kill sheep and set them on fire, and the smoke goes up and pleases God. Now, if that's a metaphor for a form of institutional uh, systems of charity where people freely give to men who gather together, because the gathering of stones is the same as the council of friends, 
So you're actually giving those offerings to those friends, those men you trust. Look out amongst you, find men you trust. You give to them, and they redistribute the wealth of society based on what you choose to give them. The alternative system is that you sign up with a group of men who will exercise authority one over the other and make sure that everybody in your community contributes the right amount. I heard just this week uh, Ben Shapiro, it's an older recording I'm sure, uh, talking with a number of people talking about the need for a social safety net in society. And Ben Shapiro thinks that, yeah, the government needs some form of social safety net. Well, of course, the kingdom of God has such a form of social safety net. And it's based on men gathering together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and certain men who are ministers who receive their free will offering. That's what they call it in the Old Testament. We call it charity and love in the New Testament. And redistribute that openly so that everybody can see how they're redistributing it and learn to trust them to do a good job because in your congregations you come together to love one another not just for the music, not just for the good feeling. So this is actually a form of government. So once you understand that John the Baptist, until John the Baptist, everybody was trying to create their utopia by men who exercise authority and use force, institute the rule of force, to force the contributions of the people, put them back in the bondage of Egypt where a portion of their labor no longer belongs to them, and the men who exercise authority take it away and redistribute it. That's the bondage of Egypt. That's where the whole world has gone. Because they've all started thinking the way the Romans were thinking, the way many of the Greeks were thinking, the way that the people in Ephesus were thinking, and they need to repent. They, they started doing this. Well, they, they started back before the beginning of the 1900s. But they really got going with FDR. And uh, they had made a number of mistakes along the way. But if you go back in history, like this preterist is evidently unable to do, because he thinks, you know, all the stuff that was prophesied in the Bible, all the... Uh, teachings of Christ and everything, what he was trying to set up with appointing a kingdom to his little flock. He doesn't make any reference to that. How do you fit that in to his theory? Oh, that was just all done away. Well, once the temple was destroyed, then we're all on our own. Now, he's right that the modern church is in apostasy. You know, he mentions the Roman church. He mentions Protestant churches. There's a great deal of apostasy there. But that's pretty general to say. I mean, there's 40,000 different denominations. Uh, There's numerous rites within the Catholic Church. And there's numerous priests and ministers within the Catholic Church. And many of them are under a strong delusion. But I met a few that were not far from the kingdom. Just the same as Jesus met a few people that were in the Sanhedrin. It was actually the false Sanhedrin, the counterfeit Sanhedrin. But they were in it. But they were not far from the kingdom, according to Christ. Of course, he, the one who was, seemed to be the closest to the kingdom was the Roman centurion. 
He had more faith than anybody that Jesus had seen up to that point. Now, I don't know if that really excluded John the Baptist, but maybe he's talking outside of that parameter, that this Roman centurion had an awful lot of faith, according to Christ. And we do know that even John the Baptist, there were few men as good as John the Baptist, but John the Baptist didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah because he has to send ministers to Jesus to ask him if he is actually the Messiah. So, the thing is, all these dots that the the Gospels give us, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all these dots that Paul gives us that are giving us little pearls, little gems of information... They have to fit together. They, they, if you just pick and choose specific little quotes, you open yourself up for that uh, hidden things of dishonesty. Because then you can start rationalizing what the will of God is, what the gospel of the kingdom is. And you, you can end up believing a lie. So everything has to fit. So the the word of God is written needs to be written on our hearts and, and our minds by the hand of God through the Holy Spirit. But we have the scriptures in the form that we have. We have, you know, uh, I talked to somebody talking about translating several of our uh, books and pages into another language, a European language. Well, I, I'm not going to be doing that. I'm busy expanding the articles that we're doing. But that would be a good thing for the people who speak that language. But it won't awaken them. The only thing that can awaken them is the Holy Spirit because that's where the Word of God really comes from. But if you think you understand the Word of God for you in a given moment or time, it should coincide with what it says in the Bible. Without picking and choosing. It's like being born again. So many people think they're born again. But they're still workers of iniquity. Yet it tells you right there. That this is how you check to see if you're born again. If you're if you're not. You can't be doing evil. And actually be born again. You can't be doing works of iniquity. And actually that the works of iniquity are evidence that you're not really born again. I mean it's no different than what James said. That you say you have faith, you believe in Jesus. I mean, the devil believes in God. He just doesn't do what God says. You know, Jesus has a parable about that. Two sons. One son uh, says he's going to do what his father says, but doesn't. The other one at first says he's not going to, but repents and starts doing it. Which one is the real son? Well, you want to be the real son. If you haven't been doing the will of the Father, you want to start doing it. And you know, and this is one of the hard things for people to realize is sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands to form a network of people bound by the love of Christ, by the charity of Christ, by the sacrifice of Christ, by the daily ministration of Christ. Is clearly what Christ commanded. It's clearly what Moses was doing. Those people who didn't want to do it, what Moses was saying, it, it says in the Bible, in the translation, that they were put to death. We have an article on put to death. And even even 
Ben Shapiro and uh, Prager in the symposium with John uh, with Jordan Peterson was saying, well, it it doesn't really mean put to death all the time. That doesn't seem to be what that those phrases actually mean. Well, we show you why it doesn't mean that. It's dead to them. They're on their own. They're outside of the network that Moses was setting up. They're in the wilderness, but they're not, they have to leave the camp. They're not apart. They're, they're not going to receive help from the living altars that Moses was setting up. I mean, the altar of Jehovah Nisi, that was a living altar. That there were stones that were actually piled up. But, the altar was alive. It was men receiving the offerings of the people to redistribute to the needy. Why did they have that? Well, they just had a battle. They were needy. People were injured. Fathers were killed. Sons were killed. Husbands were killed. Orphans were created. Because there was a battle. And those people are going to need help. So he created the Jehovah Nisi. And we explain. You can go back and listen you know, find where it says Jehovah Nisi in Exodus and go back in, in the chapters that we have at preparingyou.com. We'll tell you what Jehovah Nisi and why they call it Jehovah Nisi. Because you can go through all kinds of commentaries and they don't seem to know why he called it Jehovah Nisi. To, to me, it was obvious. A little, a little bird told me. The Holy Spirit told me. And, and and it just jumped off the page at me. Of course, it helped that I knew a little bit about history. And that's what we're going to try to teach you is a little bit about history. So you understand the world that Paul is talking in. Understand the world in which Jesus Christ is born in. Understand what was going on? We, we've talked about a lot of these things. We've had hundreds of recordings available for free. All the books are online for free. All the articles are online for free. But what's not for free is that you need to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Like Christ commanded his apostles to make the people do. If you're a minister of Christ, that's what you. a lot of people think they're ministers of Christ. And you're just trying to form your little local congregation and your little group and talk to them about Jesus. You're not seeking the kingdom. You're seeking the congregation. Your little congregation. And you may care about your little congregation. Your little congregation may care about you. But you're not seeking the kingdom. Not until you're sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and caring about others as much as you care about yourself. And then, of course, along comes the red heifer. But that's another story. We won't go there. The article is up. You can go, you know, you can go read the article and listen to the audios. But we'll be back to explore this in greater depth. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, I, I was looking at, and I've added to our, we already went through 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. But uh, I added to it because, the you know, there's always these layers. You know, when I first put 
the, the uh, and did a recording on this chapter. I didn't go into a great deal of detail about some of the individual phrases and verses that you find in the chapter. But I gave you enough that it should start opening up your eyes and, and hopefully start setting down the baggage that has been placed on the shoulders of everybody by uh, false teachers and false teachings. Now, there are a lot of false teachers out there that are teaching what they were taught in the seminary or in Bible school. And they perpetuate the false information that they were taught because they believed it. They believed a lie and they repeat it. And, and I may point out that that's not true. Like with this guy, Jester, I can point it out that that Jester is wrong about this thing and that thing and that thing. But I don't want to focus on that, that he is wrong. I want to focus on telling you what's true. But, of course, occasionally I have to say, you know, some people think this is the case, <laughs> and it's not. And some people think this is it. But I don't want to end up in personalities where I'm attacking individuals. You know, I mean, there's some guys who have their heads stuck up because they're big televangelists and stuff like that. But I want to take it on a case-by-case basis of what they say and, and deal with it. I would much rather, instead of somebody sending me a video and saying, what do you think, which now I have to drop everything, listen to the video and start doing this, especially with somebody who's not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. I meet with ministers every week who form congregations and 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 talk with them. I will love to answer their questions because I have some evidence by the fact that they're sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, that they care about other people, not just the people in their congregation. Now, I know that their motivation to do that has to come from the Holy Spirit. But the apostles were commanded by Christ to require that people sit down in that network for the daily ministration to begin, for the right dividing the bread from house to house or from group to group. And we see in the early church before Constantine ever even pops his head up that the congregations gathered every week and those who had more or enough shared with those that didn't have enough. And this is explained in an apology to the emperor of Rome so that the emperor of Rome would know why Christians would not sign up for the free bread of Rome, which was distributed through their temples or through uh, the Elementa, eventually, uh, once Nerva set up the Elementa. But Augustus was doing the same thing. Julius Caesar, who never really became the Imperator of Rome, but wanted to, but then to save the Republic, they stabbed him. And, of course, many thought he was guilty already of war crimes, and we explained that on our page on Julius Caesar. We've already talked about that in the past shows. So if you're coming in for the first time and you haven't, we're making a record of the explanations of what all these guys were doing. And this is the scene in which Jesus Christ is born. I mean, the angel appears, we'll see it in Matthew, to, to Mary and says, your son will be called the Son of God. Well, when that was told to Mary, Mary knew that Augustus Caesar 
was already called the Son of God. That Romans everywhere went to their temples, burned incense annually. They bought incense from the temple and then they burned it to the temple. It's a way of giving donations. But burned it in public, proclaiming that Augustus Caesar was the Son of God. Now, people knew he wasn't really the Son of God. I mean, they knew who his parents were. But that was a title. That made him the head of their temples that were responsible for the distribution of a daily ministration of what they call public feasts. Uh, if you wanted to go to the public feast, the public feast was for every citizen, we'll, we'll get into this in more depth, for every citizen of a given city-state. They had a public feast. And everybody who was a citizen would show up to the public feast and they would get food. You know, it's kind of like we have a, a restaurant out here called the Dinner Tree. And uh, a lot of people come from miles and miles around to go to it. I mean, it's it used to have just a dirt floor. Now they kind of have an old wooden floor. It's a shack, basically. Or a group of shacks pulled together. And they serve either chicken or beef. <laughs> well, it's like a three-pound steak is the beef. And the chicken is a chicken. You get a whole chicken. And very few people eat everything. They take it home with them. And I'm sure that's what was going on. As a matter of fact, they talk about this in uh, some of the writings of the time. Tacitus and and uh, 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 one individual that I, I've actually done a lot of work on. Because he mentions the persecutions of Christians. And, you know, he was a prolific writer. Suetonius. And he talks about... Uh, makes a reference to what appears to be Christ. He calls him Crestus instead of Christus. But that's, you know, it's just a minor little letter. Uh, and there's, there's, of course, there used to be no debate whatsoever that he was talking about Jesus Christ based on the, the time and the writings and the reference that you find. We've now created a page. We show you the original Latin that he wrote in. Uh, you know, it's in the footnotes anyway. We don't burden you. You don't have to read that. <laughs> but we show you the actual quote and where it's located. Because he was making, Nero, this was basically Nero, was making all these rules up at the time of the fire. Like, there was literally a lockdown after the, the fire where it burned Rome. And you, they the taverns could not serve cooked food anymore. That, it was against the law to serve cooked food. Supposedly because they don't want you starting fires and cooking stuff because they already had this big fire. There wasn't much left to burn. But that was one of the... And then right in the middle of that, they, they talk about the, the these Christians who were to be punished. Because we know that Nero blamed the fire on the Christians, which had nothing to do with the fire. They wouldn't have done it. They had no reason to do it. If they were real Christians. But it was blamed on them. So the, And Tacitus writes about this. Where he sees men that look like soldiers. But not dressed in uniforms. Which was done. Even, even that's mentioned in the Bible. Jesus Christ talks about an incident. Where soldiers dressed in civilian clothes. And mingled amongst the crowds. And then at, uh, at the queue of Pontius Pilate. Pulled out clubs and beat the citizens. <laughs> 
who were protesting that uh, that Pontius Pilate was pilfering their Social Security fund. That's actually what the complaint was. That he was pilfering it, not for his own benefit. He wasn't a dishonest politician, but he was doing it to bring water into Jerusalem through an aqueduct. We actually show you a picture of this, some of the still remaining stones of that very aqueduct that Pontius Pilate had built to bring in water on the page that talks about this. So we're we're setting the picture of the history, what was going on. But Tacitus writes about soldiers setting the fires, you know, like with torches, going around and setting the fires. And when people are trying to run out, some of these men who look like soldiers, and Roman soldiers had a look about them. These men, uh, they did daily workouts, they were muscular, they 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 wore their hair a certain way and all this stuff. And so Tacitus had a pretty good insight, knew a lot of people on the inside, was saying that it appears he was suggesting that Nero started the fire and had a group of soldiers that were loyal specifically to him and were actually throwing people back into the fire that that burned things. And of course, today, in politics, a person could look out at what's going on in politics and suspect that some of the po- political leaders are burning the nation down, economically, certainly. You know, I just heard this morning that, you know, more canceling of oil leases in Alaska while oil prices are going up, which is killing the poor. You know, the price of gas, the price of fuel... That means the price of your groceries, the price of everything. It's squeezing farmers. It's squeezing industry. It's going to squeeze the poor. It's going to squeeze the middle class. So somebody's burning down the nation right now with their policies. And they'll probably, of course, they got all the guys who were, what, January 6th guys, who, you know, I warned guys who were actually in Washington that day that they were going to be set up. You know, they were texting me from Washington, D.C. And I said, don't do anything stupid. Fortunately, that individual didn't go <laughs> to the Capitol. <laughs> but, uh, but a lot of people are, are being persecuted. But the problem is, is a lot of them aren't real Christians. They have courage. They have conviction. Uh, but they don't understand what's really going on. And they don't really know what the solution is. And Christ gave us the solution. But if you only know the watered-down gospel, you will not have the means and the method to stand against it. Because you will not have the Holy Spirit. Because you can lose access to the Holy Spirit. And what Moses was telling us, what John the Baptist was telling us, what Jesus was telling us, what Paul was telling us. Although many people misunderstand Paul, but of course Peter told us that he was going to tell us about things hard to understand. But Paul was telling us that we have, if you don't have charity, this fervent charity, you ain't got nothing. And the charity he's talking about, we see him doing it in Acts. There's a dearth in in Greece or in Syria or in Ephesus. And they're taking up a collection collection of money to buy supplies to take to those areas that have shortages. 
Christians are doing this. And when he goes to Galatia, when he goes to Corinth, he's saying, take up the collection with what you have that is extra, that you can afford to give, and I will see to it that it gets to where it needs to go. And of course, this is what the altars of Moses was all about. Everybody can go around and say, any, any widows here? Any, any orphans here that need help? No, they were gathered in the tens, hundreds, and thousands in order to tend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Well, mercy has to do with taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of society. So they were already gathered in the tens, hundreds, and thousands for that purpose, but now they were picking ministers to manage that daily ministration to the needy of society. That's what religion was. That's what religiere was, even to the Romans. But their free bread often depended upon taking away from somebody else. Of course, they they first started taking away from people like the Corinthians. And uh, then they took, you know, Caesar took away from the Gauls. And then he took away from almost anybody. (laughs) You know, wherever he, he marched his army, you know, Egypt or whatever. He took away and and put people under tribute. And the Romans praised him instead of arresting him for war crimes. But some people trying to restore the Republic broke in and stabbed him. That was an act of insurrection. But the Christians had the real solution. And that's the problem. Is that people today don't know what the Christians were really doing and what they were all about. John the Baptist told you. You know, I just quoted you earlier just when we were talking there. The Apology of Justin writing to Antonius Pius, the Emperor of Rome, the teacher of Marcus Aurelius. And he was... He was saying that we gather together once a week and those that have share with those that don't have enough. Why did they do that? Because John the Baptist said to do that. Because Jesus said to do that. Because the apostles said to do that. This is 150 years, 150 AD. This is 100 years after Paul. And that's what they were doing. That's what the church was doing. And not just for their local congregation, because local congregations, if a dearth comes, and they were coming, you were going to need help from other areas. So that all the Christians, the real Christians, had to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and form this peculiar kingdom that operated by faith, hope, and charity. Now, in one of our books, The Pre-Church Report, we show you how this is effectively done uh, and legally done and lawfully done in the world today in many countries. I, I can't say all countries because I haven't looked at the laws in all countries, but I, I find there's a good reason to believe that it would almost be in all countries. And it, it, Now, they might not be as copacetic in China and maybe even, I know at times they haven't been in Indonesia, but if you have the Spirit of God and, and and the nature of the network would still apply. And by United Nations law, it would still apply. Now, eventually, we know that the whole world will come against those that begin to actually become true Christians and seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We know that because history repeats itself. You know, the Pharaoh came against... Moses 
and the Israelites. They didn't have to fight them. They didn't have to fight the Pharaoh. They had swords. They had spears. They had men that could stand forward and, and defend because we know they later on they did fight the Amalek's. But they didn't have to fight the Egyptians. They, and, and so we have to realize that if history repeats itself, something similar to that may happen in the future. We don't have to worry about the future. That's where Christ started. Don't worry about the future. Worry about today. Worry about the now. Let God worry about the future. And of course, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in, tells you what to do today. Well, generally speaking, we all need to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Anybody who is a minister of Christ should be preaching that because it's the one thing that Christ commanded to his little flock that he needed to do. The other thing that he directed them not to do was the not to be like the governments of the Gentiles, the rulers of the Gentiles, who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. The Christians didn't do that because they had a, a network of charity, which we see Paul and the apostles and Timothy and all those guys doing. Somewhere along the line, people began to think that it is okay to have a social safety net that we depend upon, that's run by men who exercise authority one over the other and take away from my neighbor by force, by compulsion, so that I can have a social safety net. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. All those are systems that are based on forced offerings. Where a poor, and many of them are based on the amount of labor that you do. That's what it was in Egypt. 20% of your labor belonged to the government. That's the bondage of Egypt. If whatever government you're in, if a portion of your labor belongs to the government, you're back in the bondage of Egypt. Now, that's just fact. I'm not saying, you know, like, I'm not telling you to run to the desert and take off and, you know, you still may owe your tally of bricks. I'm just telling you why you owe it. Because you went back into the bondage of Egypt. Because the ministers, there were ministers back when this system was being created. I know, personally know some of their sons and daughters that preached, you know, that we don't want to go this way and, and, and told exactly why. And we actually take you back in early America. Early Americans knew exactly why. I mean, you guys like Davy Crockett. Now, you won't get this message from the Davy Crockett created by Walt Disney. But if you actually go and read what he said and what he wrote and what was told to him by Americans, no, you do not want legal charity. And it was common knowledge in America at one time. But it's not anymore. But hopefully if, if people share these broadcasts and our articles on legal charity and workers of iniquity and, and all these things, we will start to see, whoa, we're not following Christ at all. Some hidden thing of dishonesty has called us to walk in a way that is not cast up. Because that's where they go on and they talk about in Corinthians, just the second verse, after it says, renounce the hidden things of dishonesty. Not walking in craftiness. That's what Christians, they weren't walking in craftiness. 
What does he mean? Not walking in craftiness. That's panagoria. Skillful and clever and subtle. The strange woman who, you know, they talk about putting away strange wives. And in Ezra, they will talk about this. They talk about it several places in the Bible. And, And, of course, we point out, they also talk about strange fire. But these are actually the same words. <laughs> strange woman and strange fire can be translated from the exact same words. So are they putting away their strange fire? Or are they putting away their wives? Now Rome, and we'll go through this eventually, uh, when we talk about some of the Tacitus warrants, you know, about the corruption in Rome. And, and the more corrupt they are, the more laws they need. And of course... We, we can show you step by step the laws that were being passed. And why do we show you that? So that you understand what the first century church was actually doing. Because that was the law at the time that they were operating. But of course, their claim was there was another king, one Jesus, whose kingdom was not of the world of Rome. So that Pontius Pilate could not sit in the judgment seat. See this, this gesture who was the preterist fellow we talked about at the beginning. He he recognizes that most of the places where they talk, almost every place they talk about the end of the world in the Bible, the word world there is aeon. I don't know if he actually says which Greek word it is, but it's a word that means age or a period of time. It doesn't mean the end of the planet. It means the end of an age. Now, there may someday be the end of this planet, but I don't think that's what they, they would have used a different word if the authors were thinking end of the planet. But they're saying the end of an age. And usually at the end of one age is the beginning of another age. And so people construct these, these uh, theologies and doctrines by taking bits and pieces. That, and they put them in their doctrine and they say, well, this is this and this is this and this is so. And people listen and they go, oh, but what about this and this and this and this and this? Because <laughs> you got, it's like somebody we know used to do a lot of mechanic work. He, he didn't end up being a mechanic. He ended up doing a lot of body work instead. But it was kind of a joke that after he took his car apart or your car apart and put it back together again, he had a whole bucket there of parts laying there. And he said, well, what's that? Well, those are leftovers. <laughs> he didn't put everything back. I actually knew an old guy who did the same thing with the old truck we had. And he said, oh, you don't need that. He just, <laughs> he just left it out. <laughs> well, when you're looking at the gospel, pretty much everything is important. So it all has to fit. So we're trying to show you. Because uh, they're hiding in the force of their misinformation, the truth. And they're leading you away from what Jesus and the early church were actually doing. And that is why you're back in the bondage of Egypt, which we were told never to return to. And and we've done it over and over again, because that's what they, they were in the bondage of Egypt when they were in Babylon. Basically, they were. And some people will say, and we've talked a little bit about it already, that this, this, this king who said they could go back was a second messiah. But, uh, no, I don't think he was. <laughs> Not sure. <laughs> but we'll, we'll see what the conflict was when they went back. But we'll have to look at that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom.
Okay, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So again, we're I, I, I was compelled to revisit this Second Corinthians chapter four, and as I said, you know, he's talking to uh, people who are actually following Christ, actually going to be persecuted in the days ahead. Uh, by and this is Nero was just finding somebody to blame. And Christians were not popular with some people because of the fact that they kind of made them look bad. Because Rome at one time took care of all their needy through charity. It was because Rome was originally a republic and hoped for what they called liberus publica, free from things public. In order to do that, you had to Take, create bonds, social bonds amongst the Romans. And those social bonds were based not on force, not on contract, but on love for one another. It wasn't until Julius Caesar's uncle came along and revised the army that the army went from an all-volunteer militia to a more professional army that could actually keep spoils and pay their soldiers a profit out of what they took from others. That was forbidden in the Bible. But, and it wasn't the way of Rome originally. But they were starting to go that way. Way back in the days of Polybius. Which is why Polybius warns the people. That when they become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others, uh, they will eventually institute the rule of force and violence to take care of the needy of their society. To, to, to run their government. And, and with that, the people will degenerate. Until they, and actually even turn into perfect savages and finding once more a monarch and a king. Because they, they threw out the kings, just like America supposedly threw out King George, and we supposedly established a republic, and then later we wrote a constitution to guarantee that republic. But the Republic is where people are free from things public. And our article on Davy Crockett shows you one of the essential cultural ingredients to maintain a Republic is to take care of the needy of your society through free will offerings. Romans knew that. Germanicus knew that. Drusus knew that. They knew that we had to get away from what Julius Caesar was feeding the people. What Augustus was feeding the people. Christ knew that. John the Baptist knew that. Paul knew that. But a lot of people don't want to give up their benefits that they get from men who exercise authority by taking away from their neighbor. In that debate with uh, extreme uh, left-wing people and uh, Ben Shapiro, Ben Shapiro conceded that we need a social safety net and government has a responsibility to do that. Well, he's now left of Christ. (laughs) 
far left of Christ. Now, admittedly, you don't see it so obviously because the people he was debating were way left of Christ. Uh, they were actually even left of Augustus Caesar. <laughs> they were more like Nero. And they would, they would hate and persecute anybody who suggested that we should not look to men who call themselves benefactors but can only give you benefits by taking away from your neighbor. To sit at such a table, Paul says, is a snare. And of course Paul knew that because David said to sit at such a welfare table was a snare. And of course David knew that because in Proverbs, and, and all the prophets said the same thing. And Moses said the same thing. That, that the one purse, to take all your gold and put it into one purse, one golden statue, one reserve fund. To bind the people together by this covenant of wealth, commonwealth, is not the answer. It, it is the way to tyranny. If you... If you accept that lie, you will go into tyranny. And of course, Paul is talking to people and he says, As we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifesting that manifestation of the truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in sight of God. Now people read that and that is just so chock full of the gospel but they don't hear it. You know the the craftiness the, the panorgia skillful, clever, subtle the strange woman that I t- talked about, you know, you're supposed to put away the strange wives, the strange woman, because the same word that could be translated woman can be translated wives, can be translated fire. Same word. The, the strange woman who with her strange fire plays the harlot and tempts young men who lacks understanding with her craft and of subtleness. And flattery to abandon the way of righteousness. That's Proverbs seven five. I mean, that's what he's he's talking about. That they they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. For at the window of my house I look through my casement. And beheld amongst the simple ones, I discerned among the youth, a young man, void of understanding, passing through the streets, wide way. Remember, the way of God is narrow. Near her corner, and he went the way to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, in the black, and the dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot, and the subtle of heart. Those are full of metaphors. You know, the the one purse that runs towards death, consent not to lay wait for the blood of the innocent. We talked about the cities of blood. 
civil systems where we build the city of blood. How do you build the city of blood? You get a cauldron. <laughs> and you be the flesh. That's the city of blood. Which, which is the bondage of Egypt. Which people freely ate from the cauldron of flesh. They they were taking a bite out of one another. You know, when it tells you in the New Testament, be careful you don't bite one another, lest you be devoured. He's not actually talking about, you know, Christians who go around and bite people, like some kind of, you know, uh, zombie. You bite people when you go to the men who exercise authority and say, will you go to my neighbor's house and take away from my neighbor so that I can have free stuff from your government? From your table. If you sit and eat with a ruler, proverb also tells us. He's not talking about being invited to the White House to have dinner with, you know, Joe Biden or Donald Trump. He's saying if you sit and eat with a ruler, put a knife to your throat because he serves, and, and you be a man of appetite for those dainties that he serves. You put a knife to your throat. Because they're deceitful meats. You know, like I said, David told us in Psalm 69:22, let their table become a snare before them. And that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. And, and Paul quotes that in Romans 11:9. And David said, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. And a recompense unto them. And he talks about tables of which we should not eat. And of course, the Christian conflict. That, that this is what they were doing. And, and we've explained also, you know, that all, the, the, the altars of Nisi, which was represented by the turtle dove goddess of Nisi, which is the same as the goddess of Ishar. They're all systems of social welfare. And they say that. We know that. Archaeologists. Because they explain how it worked. That everybody had to pay in. Because everybody's in the cauldron. The city of blood. And somebody, if you don't pay in, somebody will come to your house and either force you to pay or take your house away from you. And sell it to somebody who will pay in. This is, this is the institutions of force. It is the antithesis of Christ, which is the institutions of love. Somebody was just talking about, you know, and I responded on Facebook. Somebody sent me something. I was pretty late last night, one or two o'clock in the morning. And somebody sent me something. And it was somebody talking about offices of force and power. Man, I'm who seek power will seek office. I've said this a hundred times. But Christ wasn't creating offices of power. As a matter of fact, he forbid the offices that when he appointed the kingdom to his apostles, his little flock, he said, you're, you're not to exercise authority one over the other. It's not an office of power. It's an office of service. So Christ was creating an office of service. For the last 100 years in America, people have accepted the lie that it's okay to create offices of power and force their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. That's anti-Christ. That's anti-Christian. Now, what, what church is going to tell you that? 
Well, the only one I know that would tell you that is a church established by Christ, because that's what Christ said. So, yeah. But what did he mean by, when you know, so people have handled the word of God deceitfully. Anybody, any scholar who has studied the scriptures, Mark, you know, and the Corbin that of the Pharisees, knows that the Corbin of the Pharisees was a social welfare system. It was one of those tables that was a snare. You had to sign up. And, and, and he, he sent missionaries out all over the world, Herod did, to sign up with his temple in Jerusalem. But some people didn't like some of the stuff that, that went on in the temple of Jerusalem. And you know, they certainly didn't like circumcision and all that stuff. So he also started another temple using the same basic means and method to collect funds and sign people up. It was called the Temple of Rome. And, and Rome had these temples. Ephesus was one of these temples. They all operated that way. But not, now some temples had other missions entirely. Like we say the Temple of Mineta was a mint and coined money. In Ephesus, they did both. They took care of the social welfare of the people of Ephesus, but they also were the underwriters for other systems around uh, the Mediterranean, over 127 different countries. They were a bank. They minted money. They provided social welfare. And the Christians were accused of robbing their bank. They had the most secure vault in all the Mediterranean. This is a part of that history. When they said... They're saying that the apostles are robbing the temple of Ephesus and you don't know that the temple of Ephesus was built by 127 different countries, had the most secure vault in all of the Roman Empire, had money in that vault from all these different countries, minted coin, were in charge of a shipping industry and a fishing industry. If you don't know that, you won't know what is a reasonable answer as to why the Christians were accused of robbing it? They certainly weren't breaking into the vault. So if you don't know history and you try to just read the Bible, that's like trying me going up and trying to read some book in another language that I do not know, which there are many languages I do not know, <laughs> and trying to make sense out of it by pronouncing the words over and over again. I don't know what they mean. But so it. But ultimately, even if you knew what all these words mean, knew all the history, you're still not going to see it. As a matter of fact, what I'm saying now is going to make a lot of people angry. That I'm saying that their church is not the one true church. I'm just saying what Christ was saying. If you don't match up with what Christ was saying, you're you're probably not a Christian. You know, we could do that deal like, if you're doing this <laughs> instead of this, you're probably not a Christian. Or we could say, if you're actually sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and trying to seek a way to take care of all the needy of this network, this society networking together through faith, hope, and charity, and not eating of the tables of men who exercise authority, if you're doing that, you're... You might be a Christian. If you're doing what the Pharisees did, if you're doing, if you're going back into the bondage of Egypt and you don't even want to consider a way out, 
Now, there's no easy way out. There is a way out. But you won't even understand it. You won't even be able to pursue it until you start doing what Christ said. You have to become a follower of Christ in order to receive the Holy Spirit. And then when you receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit says, do this, you have to actually do it. I didn't say that. Christ said that. It's not enough that you hear the word. You have to be a doer of the word. You see the problem? So, why aren't you in the network? Why aren't you sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands? Why aren't you showing up for somebody other than your immediate congregation? A kingdom is connected. Now, ultimately, our connection is the Holy Spirit. But when Christ said, you know, where everybody in Mark, and and you can actually see it in other of the Gospels, he's telling them all to sit down in these groups of ten, which we see the church doing for hundreds of years. Even after Constantine, they were still doing it. And if you go back in history before Christ, people were doing it. The Teutons were doing it. Uh, And before them, the Romans did it. The Jews were still doing it at the time of Christ. Their synagogues were still ten families. But many of the synagogues had signed up with Herod's system which depended upon men who exercised authority one over the other to obtain the sacrifice of the people. And the word sacrifice in the Hebrew is korban. So the korban of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect because it was a compelled offering. It was only compelled if you signed up and you consented to have this common purse. But a true republic is... A common person spirit, not on paper. <laughs> you know, you, you, there's still redistribution of wealth in the kingdom of God. But the power to choose how to do that is in the hand of the individual. There's not three branches of government. There's 144,000 branches of government. The head of every family. But in order for that to work, those families have to sit down and come together in humility. You know, like when he, when he says this word manifestation. So, so what word is that? <laughs> Phanero. Or, or it's phanerosis. But it, which is from the word phanero, which is make known. Make known what? What are they making known? <laughs> uh, and he's telling you, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. So that's, a, that's kind of a funny word, don't you think? You know, it says manifestation of the truth. And what is the truth? Well, Christ is the truth. The way of Christ is the truth. But he says commending ourselves right after that. So what, what is this word commending? What, what are they talking about? It, it's translated a form of command ten times. Prove twice. Consist once. Make once. Stand once. Stand with once. What does it actually mean? To place together. To set in the same place. To bring or band together. That's that's what it means. That's the definition of the word that we see there translated. Commending ourselves to the conscience of every, every man. To stand with. Well, that's the tens, hundreds, and thousands. If you're just standing with your little con- congregation, you're not in the kingdom. You're in a little congregation. You have to think kingdom. 
That's part of that repentance, thinking a different way. You know, and, and they have other definitions for the same word, which is to put together by way of composition and combination, to teach by combining and comparing, to show, to prove, to establish. So, to set one with another. So, they're commending ourselves to every man's conscience. Ourselves to every man's conscience. They're gathering together, standing with every man's conscience. Again, the kingdom of God has a redistribution of wealth system. You know, that's what all the leftists want, redistribution of wealth. But they want to do it by force. Like it says in that we're not to do in Matthew twenty twenty five and Mark ten forty two and Mark twenty two twenty five all out of the words of Jesus the mouth of Jesus Christ directly to his apostles when he appoints the kingdom to them. He says and he said unto them the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. What church can say it's not that way with them? Now, in the church it may not be, but for their daily ministration it certainly is. So, if you're in a church that operates and depends upon men who exercise authority, you're not in the kingdom. And that's, that to accept that requires you to think quite differently than the way people have been taught for the last 100 years. That you're not a Christian. You're not following Christ. You're not seeking the kingdom. Unless you're seeking that network that operates by charity alone. Because you can't eat of both tables. <laughs> you know, I mean, you might have to, to start out with as you begin to shift over. But already we're seeing that cost of living increases aren't there. Um, that, that, you know, I'm hearing almost daily. Where people are saying, you know, my social security check isn't going to cover it, and you know, and then some people are trying to take social security early, and some are saying, no, no, you want to take it much later because they'll, they'll cut it down, and and the prices are going up faster than your your social security check, and Medicare has dropped the benefits by thirty percent, and uh, in some places even more. Depend it depends on what how your illness goes. <laughs> Yeah, they're going. They're going to give you less and less. Now you don't want to seek the kingdom of God so that you can get more and more, because you have to seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is a giver of life. You you don't seek the kingdom to get free stuff, but to lay down your life for your fellow man. And that's not a problem for real Christians. It's a real problem for fake Christians. They want to do it. They're comfortable where they're at. They they don't hear the cries of others. Ah, they kind of do. It depends. I mean, we're all in this at different levels. But like I said, you know, this is, it was right there that Christ said, I appoint unto you a kingdom. That did not end with the fall of the temple. And, and if this preterist was reading the rest of Josephus, he would see that somebody was coming out of the Jerusalem and singing and happy to come out. They came out with nothing. 
All their money was left behind. All their animals were left behind. Their houses were left behind. Their extra clothes was left behind. Their wagons were left behind. They just walked out with the clothes on their back. No money in their pocket. And, and Titus gave them clear passage. Don't molest them. Let them come out. And there's a reason why. Because it was prophesied. But that wasn't the end of the church. That was a voluntary diaspora. But those Christians had a place to go. If you're in New York and suddenly you have to get out of New York, where are you going? Where are you going to go? Do you have a network that reaches all across the country and in other countries all over the world? Where are you going to go? Have you been seeking the kingdom or just your local congregation? If you're in, let's see, can we think of other places? Los Angeles. You're in Los Angeles. Where are you going to go? Uh, the Christians didn't all go to one local place. They'd all become a target. But they had a network. We know that. We see that in Acts. They had Christians in Corinth and Christians in Galatia and Christians in Syria and Christians in Ephesus. And they knew who each other were. They were traveling around. Not like some of the followers of John the Baptist who, when Paul gets there to Ephesus, he meets followers of John the Baptist who are start setting up a school to teach the ways of John the Baptist and they haven't even heard about Christ. Because we never see John the Baptist commanding that you sit down on a network of tens, hundreds, and thousands. I'm sure he suggested similar because like I said, that's the, the Jews were still organizing in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They were just signing up for for, for the Corbin of the Pharisees. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, what we're seeing here in this, just this one little chapter of Corinthians, and I've been going through lots of the epistles and I'm going to tie this together so that when you we get into Matthew and then as we go through Matthew we're going to step back to some shows will take us back to places like Ezra because they were coming out of literally a condition much like the bondage of Egypt much like what people are in today they were coming out of that system and some were saying oh let's do it this way and some were saying no let's do it that way and what many preachers today do, know, do not know what is the right way. They're arguing against Ezra, although they don't even know it. Because they don't understand what it means or what it meant to reestablish the temple of God. Because the temple of God was not made with dead stone. It wasn't piling up stones. It wasn't a centralization because... The, the tabernacle moved around. It wasn't in one single place. And, and the way Moses set it up, the, the stones of your altars were living men. This idea where Jesus is talking about living stones, that's not new. It was new to the Pharisees. But there were people at the time of Jesus Christ who knew that those old altars of Moses and the altars of Abraham were living stones. They taught that. They believed that. They acted according to that. And they probably became the first Christians. It appears they did. Many of them. Not all of them. 
because there there were some things you know like a, we very we know that the apostles were did have armaments you know swords at least some you know and and one guy had two swords he held up two swords but Jesus said go ahead and do that not against that but we're not going to win this with swords or guns or anything else I'm not saying to anybody not to be armed I'm not saying to be armed I'm, I'm telling you to listen to the Holy Spirit in order to listen to the Holy Spirit, is the only way that you won't be blinded by the gods of this world. So, he just he said that every man's conscience, we have to commend ourselves, gather together and let every man have his own conscience. He gives according to what his conscience is telling him. We don't try to rule over our neighbor... And we certainly can't rule over our neighbor through our ministers because those are only offices of service. Now, if, if you want to go, there are plenty of men who want to be in offices of power and rule over their neighbor. And, and But who is being the offices of service? Because that's the only way you're going to be free. If you manifest the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience, you have to, as you set, your neighbor free, as you judge to set your neighbor free, and you extend the right of choice to your neighbor, so that eventually the right of choice will be extended to you and be protected by the Holy Spirit if your choice is according to doing the will of the Father. Because we're not like the governments of the world. We're like the government of Christ. And that's what the church should be. But the modern church is really more along the lines of the Church of Constantine. And we've had programs on that. And we can get into that in more depth. But as we see in that verse 4, it says, In whom the God of this world... What world? Actually, that is the word for age. Hath blinded the minds... Of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, which is to live by faith, hope, and charity, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. But so if you're blinded, you live in darkness. If you live in darkness, you're not going to see this message. If it, If you see a glimmer of light in it, then pursue it. And make manifest the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in a network of tens, hundreds, and thousands. That's what we, the Nicolaitans didn't do that. The Nicolaitans in the era of Balaam, Nicolaitan means, you know, uh, Nico conquered, Latin people. Balaam conquered people. That's what it means in another language. Understanding that, knows that the deeds of the Nicolaitans do not extend the liberty of choice to others. Now, on, on our page where we go through this, eventually we'll put up this recording, but uh, you need to see that we need to take it farther than most people want to take it. You can't, otherwise, you're falling into the hands of superstitio. 
that you have, it has to be truth. Truth is a real thing. And so we have to go that way of truth. And, and that way of Christ. And, and the ministers of the kingdom of God are servants of the people for Jesus' sake. They operate by the authority of Jesus, but they don't exercise authority over you because it is our job to return every man to his family and every man to his possessions. What people have been engaged in, though, is public religion. Public religion is how you take care of the needy of your society. You don't do it through your church anymore. You do it through what is called public religion. The public feasts of Rome that we mentioned a little bit at the beginning. And we're going to get into more. And this is so different than what people are thinking. That in order for you to think differently, we may have to rehearse some of these. The early church had a daily ministration of pure religion. The modern church has public religion to care for most of the needs of their society. They eat at the table of men who exercise authority. And their tables have become a snare. We go through the legal technicalities to that and other articles about the New Deal and FDR and, and the Federal Reserve and all those kinds of things. But we don't do it to point our fingers at those bad guys who devised these systems. They were ignorant men living in darkness. They were blind to what they were doing. And they're not answerable to me. They're answerable to God. And I believe there is a God and I believe they'll be answerable to him. But I'm interested in those of you who wish to open up your eyes, who wish to see again, who actually wish to do the will of the Father, to be givers of life, instead of consumers and biters of one another. We know that idolatry is covetousness. To desire the benefits of these men who exercise authority is to desire the wages of unrighteousness. Because they are only provided by taking away from your neighbor, which in essence is a covetous practice, which Peter says would make us merchandise. And of course it has. Already. I'm sorry to be bearer of unglad tidings, but we have to get the unglad tidings away out of the way so that we can get the glad tidings. The good news. The good news is you can turn around your thinking. Which may require you to turn around your life. And start... Seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Colossians 3, 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication and uncleanness. Inordinate affection. Evil concupiscence and covetousness. Which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. We've been the children of disobedience. That's the bad news. The good news is you still have some time to repent. Ephesians 5, 5. For this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man. Whoremongers? Unclean persons are lumped with covetous men? Who in is an idolater? That's what it says. Covetous men are idolaters. Why? Because the temples of Rome... The temples of Sumer, the, the, the temple of Ishtar, were social welfare systems. You had to pay in. Men who exercised authority made you pay in. They had their taskmasters to make you pay in. But they provided a social welfare for the people. The dainties of rulers. That was a snare. 
And that's already done. You're born in bondage. Nobody was here. I I don't think there's very many people alive that were around when they created some of these systems. They were born into them. Now, if you say, well, how do I get out? Well, that's the wrong question. How do I repent? How do I think differently? Because repenting is essential. And the other essential ingredient, besides thinking differently, is because what got you into this trouble is you didn't care where the money's coming from. (laughs) You didn't mind it being taken away from somebody else as long as you get your share. That that was the problem. So now thinking differently is now you want to know where did you get this before you take it. <laughs> but more important, you have to seek the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is not a covetous practice. It's a practice of charity. Laying down your life in hopes of picking up your life more abundantly. Living by faith, hope, and charity. Modern Christians aren't living by faith, hope, and charity. They think faith is believing in an ideology. That's superstitio. Now, you could say that the teachings of Christ is a form of an ideology. But just believing it, you know, it's like saying we have to believe in Jesus. We have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We have to, we have to believe that, you know, that He died for our sins. Well, the devil knows all that. He just doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. So just saying you believe that, that it doesn't make you a doer of the word. And Christ says you have to be a doer. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you're not keeping the commandments, that's evidence that you may love an ideology more than you actually love the real Christ. So that's a gesture guy. He says, the Jesus everybody is worshiping is not the real Jesus. Well, he's not far from telling the truth there. I just couldn't find anything in what he said that leads me to believe that he understands the gospel. And I could find a few things that sound like he was way off, but everybody makes some mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. But we're having a conversation here. And if you get on our network at Preparing You, we'll get more in depth. If you come to some of the festivals that we have here, uh, and you start having festivals around, maybe I'll come to those and I'll, I'll have the conversation with you. Certainly other of our ministers could do that. And then you get to decide whether they're the ministers of Christ or not. I mean, because we're, we're, we're commending you to your conscience. And we hope that your conscience is guided by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 5.10 Yet not altogether with the fornicators of the world... Or with the covetous, or the extortioners, or the or with idolaters. So he, he's, you know, when he says fornicators of this world, the word world there is not age. It's the word for constitutional order or system of government. How do you fornicate with the constitutional order or system of government? You go to its systems of social welfare, to the altars of Nisi, not the altars of Jehovah Nisi, but the altars of the turtle dove goddess who forces the contribution to the people, which is, you know, the systems that FDR set up. Because FDR was a socialist. The guys who started the Federal Reserve, they were socialists. They were actually communists. Profess out loud in their diaries that they were communists. 
They hated capitalism. Can you imagine that? The federal, the guys who started the Federal Reserve hated capitalism. And of course that's why we haven't had real capitalism in America since 1913. We have remnants of it. But, you know, like, you know, remnants of a steak is a bone. <laughs> so, so anyway, so he's, he's lumping all these people, you know, uh, he does it again in, in verse 11. You know, where he talks the brothers be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such and one know not to eat. Don't eat those dainties. You know, or at least strive daily so you never have to eat those dainties. I don't want to see you starve, but I want to see you see the table of Christ. In order to have something on that table, we need to gather together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and commend ourselves to the conscience of every man. So anyway, uh, there's lots more that we could talk about in, in, in these verses. And, uh, you know, I have lots of links that go to other articles. If you go to preparingyou.com and you look up uh, Corinthians, you can go to Second Corinthians chapter 4 and you can go over some of these things. And I have, you know, footnotes showing you the definitions of, of the different words that are used to explain these. You know, like when it says, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. There's lots of Greek words that you could put there that would mean deceitfully. But it's a particular Greek word that they put there, which is dolo, which actually means to ensnare with corruption. How do you ensnare with corruption? Well, the Israelites went into the bondage of Egypt to begin with because of corruption. I mean, the the brother tells you this. He, he, he explains that we're going into this bondage, this evil where we have to sell 20% of our labor to the government of Egypt in order to have free bread. We're going into this bondage because we would not hear the cries of our brother that when he, we sold him into bondage. They explain that in the Bible. You know, it's not me telling you. I'm just telling you what it says there. And if you go, our Exodus study will show you that that's why, you know, one of the brothers pointed this out. The one that actually, they, some of them wanted to kill him. But he said, no, we can't do that. <laughs> it was a good thing that he, he did talk him out of that. But he sold them into bondage. And so they went into bondage. That's why you're in bondage today. Because you wouldn't hear the cries of your brother. You wouldn't sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and create a network all across the nation of America which was around in the early days of America to care about your neighbor's rights, your neighbor's health, your neighbor's well-being as much as you care about your own. You stop doing that. And you got farther and farther away with every government program. Every government program of the world. But see, Christ has a government program that operates by faith, open charity. Which we call the church today, but it's actually those men he called out, which in the Greek would be the Ecclesia. And of course the Levites were called out by Moses 
And they were called the church in the wilderness. And they would receive the free will offerings of the people. They didn't burn them up on altars. They distributed them to the needy. Because burning up a bunch of sheep after you just had a war and you got widows and orphans and men who are maimed and can't walk anymore. You know, maybe they lost a leg. Maybe they lost an arm. They have to support a family. Who's taking care of them? Oh, I got an idea. Let's pile up stone, burn up sheep. That will help them. No. It was a system of social welfare. Jehovah Nisi. It was the welfare like the Nisi altars in Sumer and other all the other city-states. Except for, it says right there in the text that everything you bring to the altars of God have to be free will offerings. If you're taking care of the needy of your society with anything other than free will offerings, you're probably not free. You're probably not a Christian. You're probably not, have not been seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So there's your choice. I'm just offering you a choice to do what the Bible says, what Christ says. I say the Bible because that's what Moses was saying. That's what Abraham was doing. That's what all the prophets are talking. That's what the book of Ezra was really all about. You're either going to do it this way, through faith, hope, and charity. You're going to do it this other way, through force, fear, and fealty. You do it through force, fear, and fealty, forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. You will go back into bondage. Because you're going to have to put your hands over your ears so you don't hear them crying out. I mean, Christ even says, the good steward goes to him and says, what? What do you owe? Well, by these standards and those standards, I probably owe this much, but I don't have it. I can only afford to pay this much. Paid in full. What government does that? The only government I know that does that is the government of Christ. We call it the kingdom of God. And it operates according to the perfect law of liberty, which is what Paul is telling us, what they're telling us in the Bible. But that's not the, what most Christians... They're not operating according to the perfect law of liberty. They're operating according to the men who exercise authority one over the other. Forcing the contributions of the people. I don't know how to make it any clearer than that. But I'll try in another show at another time. <laughs> but right now, uh, we're kind of through Corinthians. But I mean, I have a lot more in there. And I have probably 50, 60 articles uh the link to it at the bottom of, of the page that you can go to and and see all kinds of more, uh, probably more than 50 or 60, probably 100 links on the page alone. To understand, and, and the, the mystical thing, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. See, this operating by faith, trusting in the ways of God, not engaging in idolatry, not engaging in public religion, not engaging in a daily ministration by men who exercise authority, but a daily ministration of men who organize themselves in a system of love. That's what Christianity is all about. 
Everything else is a smokescreen. Everything else is the blind leading the blind. But you have to do it yourself. Nobody's going to make you do it. That The force is their tactic. Our tactic is commending every man to his conscience. We give you a choice. You get to choose. But we know that they have already blinded the minds of many. It takes humility to accept that and to turn around and go the other way. So I also upgraded uh, our study on Timothy. I don't actually have recordings on that page and we'll probably go through Timothy also. But we will be going through Matthew. But until you understand what the environment that Christ was born in, and, and so we're going to pop over and look at what Suetonius is writing and Tacitus is writing. Who, who was the emperor when Christ was born? That was Augustus Caesar. Why did he have all the power that he had? Because not too many years before that, there was a republic. Now we're talking in empire. Now he's got office of principate. Hillsdale College is putting on a, a, a course about the early church. And I thought maybe I would take that and see what if I could add to it or if they're missing something. Well, they're talking about this office of principate, which means first citizen, which we would probably translate into president because that's what it meant. He was the president of Rome. But he also was commander-in-chief of the military. And the the word imperator is translated commander-in-chief. If you don't translate it, you'll just put the word emperor there. But that was the office of uh, of Augustus Caesar who was really the first emperor of Rome. He had another office, which he allowed him to appoint the federal judges or the imperial judges throughout the empire. They they had local judges, but they also, if you committed an imperial crime, you would be brought before an imperial judge. And of course, Pliny was one of those imperial judges. And we talked about in a program before the Burning Bush Festival, we, we didn't have a show last week, but we talked then about Theodosius, who is also known as Ignatius of Antioch. Well, he was being brought for the, a similar crime that Pliny sent others to the emperor at that time, which was Trajan, and he eventually appeared in front of Trajan for an imperial crime. Well, who appointed those judges? It was the emperor, because he could appoint, just like the president of the United States appoints federal judges. But there's a lot going on behind the scenes. But And I see it. But we'll have to talk about that at another time on Keys to the Kingdom. Until then, all I can say is peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. See you on the network. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.